Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Jamie Dawn. I'm Heather Strong-Moore. And I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire. On today's episode, we are so excited to have Sheila Gregoire join us. Sheila is the author of the upcoming book, She Deserves Better, Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teaching on Sex, Self, and Speaking Up. In our episodes about purity culture, we started a conversation about the way purity culture modesty codes created contempt for women's bodies and harmful messages for young women and girls. This week, we're looking at what the Bible actually says about modesty and how we can raise girls with empowering messages. Let's dig in. So if you aren't familiar with Sheila's work, she is the author of the book, The Great Sex Rescue and the upcoming book, She Deserves Better. What I love about Sheila's work is how she's offering evidence-based insight and doing the hard work of really excellent research. Her research provides insight to the lasting impact of harmful and unbiblical messages about sex and relationships, and I think helps us move forward in a healthier way as a result. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sheila, can you tell us what catalyzed your work in this area? Yeah, well, I was I was in this really weird space for about a decade where I was blogging about sex all the time. I started off as a mommy blogger because no one no one says to themselves, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be the Christian sex lady because that's just weird, right? Um, but I was mommy blogging and the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. And so I started writing books about sex. I was talking about libido and orgasm, all kinds of stuff. Um, but the one thing that I didn't do was read other books because I kind of figured they love Jesus. I love Jesus. We're all saying the same thing. And I didn't want to plagiarize. And then about four years ago, through uh, various circumstances, I took love and respect off the shelf. And I read the sex chapter in that. And I I described that as like the nuclear bomb that went off in my living room, because that changed everything for our ministry. Because I read stuff like, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So sex is just for men. And it's all about physical release. It's not about intimacy. There wasn't a single word in there about a woman feeling pleasure too. Like it just was all, you need to give him physical release or he's going to come under satanic attack. And I thought, holy cow, if this is what we're teaching in the evangelical church, no wonder women are still messed up. So that prompted a huge research study that we did for the Great Sex Rescue. We surveyed 20,000 women um, to see how evangelical teachings around sex and marriage affected marital and sexual satisfaction. And if anyone, if you're listening, if you go to Amazon, look up Great Sex Rescue and read the reviews, there's like, there's 2,200 of them now. Um, The most common words you'll see are validating and freeing. So I felt so validated. I felt so free. But then we had all these women coming to us saying, okay, Sheila, like, I feel so much better now, but I have no idea what to say to my kids. Because I grew up with all this toxicity. And now what do I do? All I know is the toxic stuff. I don't want to pass that on. But I also don't want my kids to be totally promiscuous. So what do I do? Um, So that's what she deserves better is we surveyed another 7000 women to find out about their experiences as teens in church, and how that affects them long term. And yeah, really interesting findings from that as well. Wow. I can't wait to get my hands on the book, but I've loved um, hearing little pieces of it. And I just want to point out, um, if you listen to Sheila's podcast, um, I love how 
intergenerational your ministry is. Um, so <laughs> what did it look like for you to bring your daughter in to your ministry? I know it's a super weird thing. Cause like we are the Christian sex place and it's mostly a mom and daughter team, which is really weird. My husband comes on the podcast quite a bit too. And he's co-authored a book for men with me and my son-in-law is sometimes on the podcast, but yes, it is. It is mostly me and my daughter, Rebecca, and then a friend of ours, Joanna Sawatsky, who is also a millennial. So I'm the Gen X woman with the millennial daughter. And, and then there's another millennial helping us as well. Um, and it is, you would think it's weird, but because we focus so much on research and on evidence-based advice, we're not talking about what I like in the bedroom. We're not talking about my experiences in the bedroom. We're not talking about Rebecca's experiences in the bedroom. We're just talking about what the research shows. So that makes it a lot less weird and, and just a lot more focused on health. <laughs> I think it's so fun. So I'm, I'm really grateful. And I think um, it's such a picture of what it really looks like for women to be coming into health and wholeness together. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have a master's in counseling. And so I just really appreciate good social science research <laughs> and like understanding what is a representative sample. And even as you've been talking in some of your podcast episodes about what is a leading question that a researcher <laughs> would ask and what is a genuine open-ended question that is actually getting to real stuff. I just really appreciate that in the church, we need good academics. We need good research. We need good information that then we can apply to our biblical theology that we're seeing it through the lens, making sense of it through the lens mm -hmm. of scripture. Um, but those two things don't have to be antithetical to one another. And in fact, ought to go hand in hand. The Lord created us and created us to be curious about how we operate and to learn more about who we are as we are made in God's image. And so I love that y'all have really uh, made those two things go together in, I think, ways that they're meant to be. Yeah, I, I sort of think about it in terms of two different um, theological things that we stand on. The first is that Jesus is the truth, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we are studying what happens in the world... <laughs> It, it's going to conform to Jesus because we don't need to be afraid of research because as we know more about truth, we're going to understand more about Jesus. It's like what they say in Romans one about how even creation points us to God. So when we learn things about how humans operate, we're learning about God and that's not a scary thing. Um, and then the other thing that Jesus said, uh, was he was talking about how when there's false teaching, the way that you recognize it is by its fruit. So a bad tree can't bear good fruit and a good tree can't bear bad fruit, but you can recognize things by their fruit. And that's what we stand upon because in everything that we've looked at in theologies around marriage in teachings around sex and what we tell teens, there's, there's people saying we should be saying this, or we should be saying this, or we should be saying this. And Jesus told us how to judge because people are always going to have different interpretations when we look at scripture. Um, but Jesus says the way you judge is you look at the fruit. And so that's what our research projects have been about is let's look at the fruit and let's see what really works <laughs> and let's not be scared of that. Yes. Oh, that's so good. All right. So for those who are coming to the podcast for the first time, our format is to work through a passage of scripture that centers the experience of women and discuss what the passage is teaching us. So today we're going to start by looking at what the Bible actually says about modesty, followed by a discussion of how evangelical culture has understood these passages. And we just want to offer an invitation to a better path forward for the next generation of girls and young women.
Yeah. So today we're definitely living into true excavating, kind of uncovering what's been added on. And let's let's look at these two um, passages that are often cited. So we'll start in First Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And it goes on from there, of course, to a fairly uh, controversial passage that we have other episodes about. So you can <laughs> dig into those for the, the rest of that. Um, and then first Peter three says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So again, it goes on from there, but really what we see is really similar passages that are emphasizing women not defining themselves by their outward appearance, particularly as it relates to socioeconomic status, really, that there's a flashiness to this, even the elaborate hairstyles. It's not so much like you, your hair can't look nice, but that that was really a, a declaration of privilege and wealth in the way that uh, women were able to have their hair braided. Um, so I think what we see in the actual passage is such an emphasis on making sure that we're not like wearing our, you know, most brand name stuff and giving preferential treatment as a result as well. Um, and so there's such a difference, I think, in the actual passage versus how we see it applied often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when you think about where are the modesty passages in scripture, the first Timothy two really is the only one that talks specifically about how women should dress. And it is not talking about flaunting your body. It has nothing to do with lust, nothing at all. It is about um, making a church, which is welcoming for outsiders. That's what it's about. It's about inclusion <laughs> rather than exclusion. And that was Paul's whole emphasis in the whole book of First Timothy was he was he was saying, okay, we're trying to create a, a church in Ephesus, which is thriving. There's a lot of false teaching going on. There's some there there's there's some fights and quarrels within the church. So how do we sort all of those out so that people are getting along and so that other people feel comfortable when they come into church so that our church can grow? That was Paul's emphasis. And when he was talking about modesty, that's what he was talking about. Like, yeah, just don't, don't look rich because we want everyone to feel comfortable. Yes. I, of course, growing up, I only ever heard this passage applied to clothing and like, yeah, like sexuality and lust, like you were saying. Um, and so it was really revolutionary for me, genuinely just in the last year to actually have a better understanding of what this passage is about. Because especially when you're young, when you hear it interpreted a certain way, you accept it as such, and then you kind of move on in your growth and in your faith. And um, you may not come back to re-examine that. Um, so yeah, I just sort of accepted that into adulthood. Of, oh yeah, it's about covering up <laughs> and yeah. like covering up your body. Um, and I just do think that's such a more beautiful 
invitation to what you're both talking about of, hey, dress in, conduct yourself in a way, present yourself in a way that is welcoming for other people. That's not alienating. That's not telling someone who may come in, hey, you don't belong Mm -hmm. here because you don't look like me. Um, That's not communicating judgment or comparison. And I do think, especially now in our modern age of social media, comparison is such a significant struggle that we all experience. And so this passage actually has very lovely things to say about how we avoid provoking comparison and trying to um, make other people feel bad compared to us. I mean, those are actually some pretty helpful lessons <laughs> that we could gain from these passages in our modern context. that are so much bigger than just your body and showing your body, but is actually how are you perhaps flaunting your lifestyle or um, the type of life that you're living and the hair products that you're using, you know, all these things that we actually do still struggle with on social media of a, sort of an influencer culture. But this passage could give us really helpful guidance on that's much bigger than how we've mm-hmm. traditionally understood it. Yep. Yep. And I would think it's true for men as well. They didn't have those same issues with men too, but think about the men with the Rolex watches or the sneakers that cost a thousand dollars. Like, you know, a lot of pastors are violating first Timothy two, eight to 10 every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Sheila, it did. This does make me think about one of your recent episodes on your podcast, Bear Marriage, um, where you talk about modesty and modesty teaching. I think it was your episode from March 18th. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about this story where you were leading your daughters through a Christian t- um, teaching and like curriculum that was inviting them to think about how their friends dressed and to sort of judge their friends on a spectrum of modest or not modest. And I think these passages actually really speak to why that's not helpful. <laughs> that <laughs> It actually isn't like that, that teaching of now appraise yourself and appraise your friends for are we all modest or not? It's inviting us to judge one another and to ostracize one another. And I really loved that at the time you realized that's not the mindset that you wanted your mm-hmm. preteen and teen daughters to have to judge their friends or to alienate their friends. And I think these passages, I think, would support the conclusion that you came to of that's not what the church is about. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to present ourselves in a way that welcomes others in and makes mm-hmm. them feel like they could be part of it as well, rather than creating these rigid codes that would push people out. Yeah, because the the curriculum we were looking at, it was called Secret Keeper Girl by Dana Gresh. And my girls were, I think, around 12 and 10 at the time, something like that. Um, and the first episode or the first, the first date that you were supposed to go on with your daughters had you, you were supposed to get a China teacup, um, a ceramic mug and a styrofoam cup. And you were supposed to ask your girls if they had friends who were treating themselves more like a styrofoam cup in the shows they watch, the music they listen to, or the clothes they wear, were they, were they showing themselves to be trashable rather than a China cup. Now at the time we had several girls who would hang out at our house who came from, you know, more more marginalized homes. They would often wear crop tops and spice girl t-shirts. And this was just what was going on. And we welcomed them. We had them over for dinner and there was no way that I wanted my girls to start thinking about those girls as trashable. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so I got rid of that curriculum. But think about what Paul was saying. Paul wanted people to feel welcome. Would girls feel welcome in a church, which was talking about how they were trashable based on what they wear? 
Mm -hmm. Right. I think, I think not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so much too, like what we see, it, it can't be overstated because of how much it has been emphasized. We don't see anything in these passages about the male gaze, really. Mm -hmm. Like it's all about comparison. It's all about invitation, but it's certainly not defining clothing by who else will be mm -hmm. looking in terms of like this male gaze and the way in which these modesty codes that evangelical culture is made up um, is emphasizing the men and um and in particular the way that women should actually see themselves as a potential stumbling block which is just such a horrible way to raise mm -hmm. young women to see themselves um but let's let's talk a little bit about what did you find from your research how how were these messages impacting women Mm hmm. Okay. Well, let's, can, can, can we go a little bit backwards and talk about some of the Bible passages that are used and what that's really saying? And yes. then I'll tell you how, what I found. So the, when, when, when the Bible talks about modesty in terms of lust, or really when the Bible simply talks about lust and how men see women's bodies, the emphasis is always put on the man. It's not put on the woman. So Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her and advises that you gouge out your eye. <laughs> if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He does not say if your eye causes you to sin, then cover up all the women around you. He says, gouge it out. Now, what was happening at the time was that um, the teachers of the law, if they saw a woman approaching, they would cross the road and not look at her. And when Jesus was saying that about lust, whoever has already looked at him has already committed adultery. What he was really doing was he wasn't even just calling out the lust. He was calling out the way they were treating women because they were treating women like, I can't look at you. You are danger to me. You are nothing. I get to ignore you because you are a woman. And Jesus was saying, no, you're not allowed to do that. You know, the longest conversation that we have recorded that Jesus had with anybody was with the Samaritan woman in John four, where he sat down in the middle of the day and talked to a woman where everybody could see and where he was getting chastised by the disciples, but he was doing the opposite of what the teachers of the law were doing because the teachers of the law were saying, don't look at her, don't notice her, don't, don't do any of that. And Jesus never refused to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And that is the big difference. So, but what we have done in the church is we've forgotten all that. And we have put the blame back on women. And we have said, you can't be a stumbling block to your brothers in Christ. And we can discuss the stumbling block package passages later, because I have a unique view on those two. There's two of them. Um, and we can look at those if you want. But uh, what we did in in our in our study for she deserves better is we studied four different iterations of the modesty message um, because there is many factors that go into what we tell teen girls about modesty. So we asked if they had ever believed at different points in time and how strongly they believed or disbelieved um, these four ideas. Boys are visual in a way that girls will never understand. Uh, boys can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to incite it. Um, a girl has a responsibility not to be a stumbling block to the boys around her. And a girl who dress mo is, modestly is better than a girl who doesn't. Um, and I may not have those exactly word perfect, but those are the basic things that we looked at. 
and all of them are toxic. They are terrible. <laughs> okay. The, the, the outcomes long-term are awful. Um, if you believe modesty messages, for instance, you have a, a girl has a 52% higher rate of having vaginismus when she's married, which is a sexual dysfunction disorder that evangelical women suffer from at two, two to two and a half times the rate of the general population. And the modesty message is largely responsible for it. Um, they're 68% more likely to marry an abuser if they believe the modesty message. They're 30% more likely to have lower self-esteem, which then leads to worse relationships, worse mental health, um, worse job outcomes, all kinds of bad things long-term. So these are terrible, terrible messages that we have given to our girls and it needs to stop. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to see and part of why I love your evidence-based approach is because we were really told these things as if they are a fact, like mm -hmm. it is how a man is wired, like part of his biology that he just can't help it. He is a visual person. Mm -hmm. And, um, and all those things are just not true. Um, <laughs> and so I think to be able to, um, come back with a really like evidence-based like this this has really bad fruit is so helpful um in particular because of how we really were taught those things as if they were like in your biology book almost yeah and they're not um the most recent meta-analyses there's one from 2020 and 2021 um which are so a meta-analysis is when they take like all kinds of different studies and pull them all together and create operational definitions and try to try to amalgamate all of the research to come to a bigger conclusion. Because often you'll have all these really small studies, some of which say contradictory things. So let's put them all together and see it. And the two most recent meta-analyses show that there are not really brain differences that matter between men and women. And men are not more visual than women are. Women do have higher arousal non-concordance, which means that our bodies can be aroused when our minds don't think that we are. So we can see something and be like, oh, but like we're actually responding physically, for instance, and we tend to be aroused by different things than men are, but we are not less visual. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's like genuinely shocking because it's so ingrained in, mm -hmm. I think, at least modern evangelicalism that, oh, this is just how men are and women aren't at all. Mm -hmm. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, men are from mars women are from venus or whatever you know like that we live on separate planets and that's genuinely shocking in such an important way that that's mm -hmm. just patently false but when you teach men that they can't help but lust mm -hmm. then that becomes their reality and so for those men they probably can't help it and multiple studies have shown this too when you create a hypervigilance around lust then you create the lust problem we found this as well we've studied men too and um a lot of men think that they are struggling with lust when it looks like they're merely noticing that a woman is attractive and they don't know the difference between those two things they don't understand that noticing doesn't mean that you're lusting Whereas like, it's okay for women to say, oh, that guy is hot. We don't get like, we don't get negative messages for saying that. But if a guy were to say, oh, that girl is hot, then he's now lusting, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, not that we, we should be, not that we should be going yeah. around saying people are hot, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> women don't get the same, like we aren't accused of lust in the same way that men are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love how you pulled out those teachings of 
that Jesus, whenever he's talking about lust, he is focusing on on men mm -hmm. and exercising self-control rather than covering up women. That's so simple and fundamental and yet so important because we obviously completely ignore that reality. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And we've, Jamie and I have talked some, when we did some episodes about purity culture, that some of this also stems from not normalizing intergender friendship. Mm -hmm. And that's the hype, also the hypersexualization of like, oh, you're going to be attracted to each other and you're going to cause each other to stumble, et cetera. And then we cultivate dehumanizing one another and objectifying one another because we're also not normalizing just normal platonic friendship that does humanize someone. It creates meaningful connections that help you to see the opposite sex as humans yeah. <laughs> and, and peers and equals because you know them and you care about them and they care about you and how much Jesus really models friendship with women in such lovely, healthy ways. We're recording this around Easter time and I am studying Jesus raising Lazarus with students this week. And it really stuck, stuck out to me this time around reading that story that Jesus has one-on-one -on -one interactions with both Mary and Martha beforehand. And he has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Martha. She comes out to meet him. And then Martha goes back and says, hey, Mary, Jesus wants to talk to you. Mary goes out and talks to Jesus. And that's very, it seems very normal. It seems very just casual in the story. Of course, they're dealing with something very heavy of the death of their brother, but that doesn't seem strange. It's not presented as strange that Jesus wants to talk to them. It's a friend talking to his friends who are going through something difficult and he wants to join with them in that. I think that's such a beautiful example yeah. that we don't really ever draw out these pictures of Jesus having female friends that he just cares for. Yeah. And in fact, um, if you look at the way book series like Every Man's Battle treat women, it's actually impossible to have friendships with women. So every man's battle, that book series sold 4 million copies. And it told men that what they had to do was bounce their eyes away from women. So they could never look at a woman. Like if you go into an office, you need to immediately bounce your eyes because usually offices have receptionists and receptionists often bend over. And so you must bounce your eyes away in case there's a woman who bends over. Um, and so this whole framing sees women as a threat. Mm -hmm. Women are a threat to me. They're not a person. And whether you are lusting after someone or whether you are bouncing your eyes, you are still seeing a woman primarily in sexual terms. You're still objectifying her. And Jesus never does that. Yeah. I think even that language of a stumbling block is quite literally dehumanizing. It's like, yeah taking away the agency of another person and literally making them into an object uh, for you to really like discard and get rid of. Um, and I just think that's so disturbing to think about the ways in which we were not only basically cultivating a lust issue within the church, but also saying like people should be discarded and moved out of your way, basically. And that's, it's just so damaging that we were that men were raised with that message, but also that women were raised to really see themselves in that way. Yeah. And if you look at the stumbling block passages, they don't even apply to the lust thing. Like if you think it through, okay. So, um, first of all, when we talk about modesty, what we'll often hear is, well, obviously guys shouldn't lust after girls, but girls also need to make sure not to be a stumbling block. So there, we got to tell both sides of the story. That's what I often hear. Okay. If a girl is a stumbling block, what are we saying is happening? 
we're saying that a girl has done something which has caused him to lust after her. So either he lusts after her or a girl does something which causes him to lust after her. In both cases, she is the one being sinned against. In both cases. <laughs> and, and yet we never seem to notice that. She is the one being sinned against. When you look at the stumbling block passages, Paul isn't saying um, that we aren't supposed to cause someone to sin. It's not about causing someone to sin. Paul is actually criticizing those who would weaken someone's faith. So if someone believes that eating meat sacrificed to idols is actually wrong, then if you understand that this doesn't affect your relationship with God, you still shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols in front of them because their faith may be weakened. So he's not saying don't eat meat in front of them because they might sin. He's saying don't weaken their faith. Like don't, don't wreck their conscience. Okay. Now here's the thing. When we tell girls, your body is a stumbling block to boys, whose faith is being weakened? And if you look long-term, girls' faith is tremendously weakened. These are the women who end up leaving the faith years later. This is what we found. These are the women who feel tremendous shame, who have really low self-esteem. That And those self-esteem effects are lifelong, even if they deconstruct that belief later. Like who is actually being harmed by this message? I um I knew a, a a man who is very well known who he writes very big best selling marriage books and he and I used to be friends until I started calling everyone out. Um and I was hoping that he would actually endorse the Great Sex Rescue and I sent him a copy of the Great Sex Rescue and he wouldn't endorse because of the lust message and I had a conversation with him on the phone about this and he he was saying um but Sheila women need to understand what men are like. And I said, but when you tell these things to women, you lower their libido, you lower their orgasm rates, you lower their marital and sexual satisfaction. Does that not matter? And he said, well, I'm sorry about that, but they just need to understand. So he was willing to pay that price. He was willing to have that price paid. He was willing for women to have much worse outcomes because it was vitally important that they understand how men are even though men aren't like that. <laughs> That's what yeah. I was going to say that you, yeah. you talk about your, kind of your husband's response and Heather's talked about that as well, but seeing that like, wait, what? Like, this is not <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. And to say that unilaterally as if like every man is a monolith and there's one experience of men is, mm -hmm. is also damaging to men, but certainly for women to experience safety and refuge in a safe community is, is so important. And I think that's actually why these, these messages are so dangerous. So we looked at several, we looked at all kinds of, of different toxic teachings and she deserves better. Um, but we also looked at some in, in the great sex rescue. And what you'll notice is that the ones that have the highest, um, correlation with vaginismus, they have something in common, which is that they make women feel like the world is unsafe. So boys can't help but lust. If you're dressed like you're trying to entice it, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Um, these things all increase, you know, rates of sexual pain, they lower libido because women feel like I can never expect true intimacy. 
I can't, you know, even though I long to be known and truly known, I long, I long for a man who will have eyes just for me. I long for someone who will want me, not just want sex. I'm being told over and over again, that is impossible because that's not the way God made men. And so I need to go through my life understanding that men, even Christian ones, will always be objectifying me. And there's nothing I can do about that. My best case scenario is that I manage to find someone who will commit to me. And then once I'm married, I have enough sex that he isn't tempted by other women, even if I have to give sexual favors during my period. And that's what we have taught women is you can't actually expect anything better because this is just what men are like. And that's an inherently unsafe situation for women. It's like, no matter what, I'm never going to have the intimacy that God made me for. And then they have the gall to tell us, and this is God's design. Exactly. Yeah. And it that does, as to your earlier stat, that gives such an opening for abusers. to Because mm -hmm. it just basically condones abusive relationships and normalizes abusive relationships. And I, I shared in a, a few episodes ago on our podcast that it is not normal for men to get off, essentially, when their wives or partners are not at all interested. Like, yeah. we should not normalize that. And yet yes. we do. And I think we, in many ways, we normalize it more in the church than in the culture. And the culture normalizes that plenty as well, that like, oh, men just want to get it at any cost. And they don't care how you feel or not that's rape culture like that's really horrifying and i think that we very much normalize that in evangelicalism rather than saying hey a caring loving husband should be very emotionally attuned to his wife and he mm -hmm. actually if she's not into it that will be detrimental for him and he's not going to want to push that um that's what a caring man should do <laughs> and like we should be able to expect that we should expect mutuality and for mutuality to be a priority for loving Christian godly husbands. And we have just never placed that expectation on Christian husbands. Yeah. No, I know. And that's really what the great sex rescue is about. So I know my new book is really about teens, but yeah, the great sex rescue is all is really all about that. How we have not expected men to want intimacy as well. We have seen men as just physical and only interested in the physical and we've allowed men to feel like they're connected without having to do the work of connection. Mm. So for so many men, they have sex in order to feel connected, but we found that 18% of women, their primary emotion after sex is feeling used. So they would have felt more intimate if they hadn't had sex, because when you have sex with someone who is depersonalizing and objectifying you and just using your body, it feels worse mm -hmm. than not having sex at all. And yet we've taught that as if it is holy. And it starts with the, with the teenagers, with the messages that we give teens about what boys are like. And then it continues with the messages that we give adult women about what marriage should look like. Sheila, um, can you talk about, cause we're really, what we're talking about is also in, instead of choosing safety for women, we've actually chosen to create places of refuge for unsafe mm -hmm. men and and really in particular predators. And so I, I think it's so important that we feel the horror of the text you've been quoting about the eight-year-old yes. in her midriff. Yes. So can you talk about that? And just in general, that, that message that we hear from it? 
Sure. So this again is from Dana Gresh's curriculum, Secret Keeper Girl, which was really big during purity culture. She since rebranded it as True Girl, Eight Eight Great Dates for Moms and Daughters, which was out in 2021. And the worst of this isn't in there, but there still is. I'll I'll, I'll talk afterwards about what's still there. But in Anne's Secret Keeper Girl, um, she had girls do these different tests to see if their clothing was appropriate. And one of them was the raise and praise test. So you were supposed to raise your hands to make sure that no skin was showing. And the reason is she said, bellies are very intoxicating. And she had this conversation that moms were supposed to have with their daughters about this, uh, that she laid it out. And I'm not going to quote this exactly because I can't remember it, but all of these points are there. So, um, the mom is supposed to ask the daughter, do you remember what intoxicating means? And if the daughter didn't, she was supposed to explain that it's like when you're under anesthetic, dental anesthetic, or when you're drunk and when a man is out of control. And God made men to be intoxicated by our bodies. But a man is only supposed to be intoxicated by one person's body, his wife. And so you need to make sure that you're not intoxicating anyone other than your husband. And this is why eight-year-olds need to not raise their arms because their bellies are intoxicating to grown men, which means that the men become out of control. Like, how did nobody see this? This was this was put out by, by Family Life. It was put out with, with Rebecca St. James. It was put out by Moody Publishers. How did nobody see how bad that was? And even though they took out the bellies thing in the new version, they still talk about intoxicating. They still talk about how grown men are drawn to continue to finish the picture of your body. So if you show a little bit of skin in one place, they will picture all the other bits of skin. They still say that. And Shanti Felden in her article, um, Letters to My Teenage Daughter, says the same thing. Like she talks about how, how men are just uh, created to linger on um, and imagine and fantasize about the great body he's seeing and not just your friends, but even your friend's dads. And so when you're over at a friend's house, remember that you're, what you're about this dad. And I'm sorry, but I would never let my child babysit for a woman who thought it was normal that a husband would look at her, at his daughter's friends like that. That is just plain predatory. Ugh. And that's like all the horror with none of the protection, because <laughs> there is some, of course, there's value to teaching children and, and girls and young boys too. Like, how do you protect your body? You know, how are you aware of people should not be touching you? You know, like we need to teach kids to know their own boundaries and to be able to understand their boundaries. Um, and that's for their protection, not just to horrify them and make them feel constantly on edge and constantly threatened. And so this like, it's again, it's like all of the worst things. It's making kids and girls feel scared of everyone, but not in a way that actually keeps them safe. It's just in a way that makes them have zero trust for anybody. Yeah. And that's what we see long-term is when girls are taught this, they have a much harder time trusting their husband when they're married, even their husband, even if their husband has done nothing untrustworthy. You just don't trust men as much. And that lowers your libido, all kinds of bad stuff. There's just so much bad fruit. But think about what this does too. So, so girls are told he is out of control. That's the definition of intoxicating. He is out of control. 
So then what happens if someone does abuse this girl? Well, it can't be his fault because he was out of control. I must have caused it. And that is the language that we see both around the modesty message and around consent that is directed at teenage girls is boys can't help it. And so you need to be the gatekeeper. You need to shut it down. You need to not wear anything revealing. You need to not get him going because once he's going, he can't stop. And we've taught them to be secret keepers. Like I know. Just, just the, the name of that curriculum is so horrifying of like, all right, girls, let's learn to be secret keepers. So I I'm know. glad that she changed the name, but just that in and of itself is so mm-hmm. terrifying. Mm-hmm. Again, how did anybody ever think this was a good idea? Right. right. And it was a secret keeper girl event that went all over North America for like, I don't know, 15 years. Like it was huge. How did nobody say, hey, baby, this is not a good idea? Right. Yeah, I'm truly, I've heard you now say it on like a couple different podcasts and it's horrifying every time because it's, um, there's nothing about that that should be normalized. And I think the fact that we have lowered the bar that much, um, that that would be an, a thing that we see as normal is uh, disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about how you point out it was not just men that were writing these books, um, that women were writing them as well. And how much, of course, like conditioning that is to believe the more you see yourself dehumanized as a stumbling block, the more you internalize that. Um, so as women who, I think some of these women maybe who have been asking like, how do I not do this? Um, there's so much internalized misogyny that we've absorbed with that. Um, so what are some ways that you have seen women identify the residue of that in their own lives? Um, and how do we kind of unravel ourselves from that? I think first we have to try to figure out what the truth is. Okay. So even if you have a hard time letting go of these things, like what do you want to be true? right? Like we all just want to know that we're safe. We want to know that men can have the Holy Spirit just as much as women. We want to know that men were not made less in the image of God than women are. We want to know that we can be safe when we are around male believers. And if we can't be, if we're actually less safe with male believers than we are with the general population, that's a problem. And we need to be honest about that. And, you know, if, if, if we're like, ah, but I mean, I don't want her dressing like a tramp or there's so many girls dressing like hoes or whatever we may say. Okay, take a big step back and and just ask, what would Jesus's perspective be on this? Um, We did find some interesting things, which is in our focus groups, we talked about the modesty message. Overwhelmingly, girls said that, or women said that the place that they heard the modesty messages as girls was from other women. You know, sometimes they would hear it from their youth pastor. Sometimes a pastor would preach on it from the pulpit, but overwhelmingly it was from other women giving them dress codes, um, pulling them aside, telling them to put on a sweater. Um, That's what happened to my daughter when she was 11. Um, A Sunday school teacher told her not to wear V-necks anymore because the men would look at her chest and then I couldn't get her to go to church for several weeks. I mean, it was just awful, right? What 11-year-old wants to be told that? 
um, or my girls were told by an elder's wife not to wear skirts when they were on the praise team as teenagers, uh, because the men might, the men in the front row might look up their skirts, but the only men who ever sat in the front row were elders when they were serving communion. So this was just very distressing to me. So it's overwhelmingly women that are giving these messages. And we actually looked at, okay, when women believe the modesty messages as adults, because a lot of us believe them as teens, but we don't believe them now. So let's look at the women who believe them now. What did they have in common? What are some of the characteristics of their lives? And what you find is that they are far more likely to be in abusive marriages. They are far more likely to be married to men who have porn issues. Um, they are far more likely to have lower, like it's just lower self-esteem. It's just a big hot mess. Now, this doesn't mean that every woman who teaches it has a bad marriage. Um, they're just more likely to. And so that should start to, so when I hear a woman say that, like I told you, when I hear a woman write that even the dads are looking at girls that way, I worry about their husbands. And I think that's a good rule of thumb is if there's a woman who's saying that all men lust after teenage girls, never, ever let your teenage daughter babysit for that family. <laughs> I think that's a very good rule because if they think that all men do that, then it means the men that they know best probably do that. And that's concerning. Now, it might not be that. It might be just that they have, this is what they've been taught their whole lives and they've internalized it. And that could also be true. Um, but we also did find that, that uh, the modesty messages are highly correlated with general measures of internalized misogyny. So we, a, a really good measure of internalized misogyny is the idea that girls talk too much because people often believe that girls talk more than boys do or that women talk more than men do and that this is a problem. It's actually not true. Uh, James Dobson started that off in 1983. He made it up. There was no citation given in his book and people have quoted it and, and kept it going around for decades. But when actual researchers measured it, women and men say virtually the same number of words in a given day. Uh, there's no real statistical difference and multiple meta-analyses have found this. The only problem is when women are in mixed groups. So when there's a mixed group, women don't talk enough. So if you believe girls talk too much, that means that, first of all, you're not connected with reality because girls do not talk more than boys do. They actually talk less. But also you think that girls' voices are a problem and that we really should be prioritizing boys' voices. That is internalized misogyny. And when women believe girls talk too much, they're four times more likely to believe the modesty messages. And so the modesty messages are also a form of internalized misogyny. That's one of our big theories um, from, our, from our research. And so it's kind of like women, so children are supposed to be seen, but not heard. But in the evangelical church, women aren't supposed to be seen and we're not supposed to be heard. I think that's so insightful because really, when we think about like wanting a better path forward for the younger women behind us, like we also have to think about how we are continuing to unravel from those messages. And so I think we really have to do some work to like dig up those roots and ask ourselves hard questions about what we do believe about ourselves and our peers. And so I think it's really important that you're uh, bringing out that piece of the internalized misogyny, because you're right. Like and even if they didn't fully believe it, they were the ones who usually had to be like the dress code police. <laughs> and 
say like, oh, you're wearing spaghetti straps. You better go put a jacket on or whatever. And so even when you don't believe it, when you're the one who has to police that and enact it, whether or not you believe it, like it's gotten into you somehow. And so Mm -hmm. to be intentional about kind of unraveling from that, I think is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely was raised with that perception as well of like, oh, women just talk constantly and men hardly ever talk. And then I was a freshman in college in intro to psych and my textbook was immediately refuting that of like, oh, men and women actually talk about the same and men are far more likely to interrupt someone mm-hmm. in conversation than women are so mm-hmm. from the time I was 18 I was like what the heck like, that's just <laughs> not true at all and so like I've sort of been on a soapbox ever since of like that's a misconception <laughs> about yeah. how men and women are but yeah it was so ingrained of oh women are just gonna talk 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 and I think especially in church settings there's kind of this stereotype of we have to drag the women out of church because they're just gonna stay and talk forever and we're never gonna get home for lunch so they can make lunch You know, like there's so many random things that we put on women that are these negative stereotypes that are just not based in reality at all. Yep. Yep. So you talked about that question of like, how do we, we don't want our young women to be overly revealing or, um, or living in a way that they feel they even like desire that male gaze in a way that's not helpful or appropriate. Um, and I've really appreciated some of, um, how you've talked about, yeah, what can it look like for us to help young women choose clothes or decide what's appropriate? Um, so can you give us a few of those, um, that you've drawn out? Yeah. So we work and she deserves better. We, we go through, um, a bunch of exercises that moms can do with their daughters or youth leaders can do with girls on, on how to figure out clothing choices that have nothing to do with stumbling blocks, lust, et cetera, just, just how to make good choices. But one of the first things I think is really important for adults to do is to get rid of some misconceptions about the nature of clothing. So we tend to think that certain body parts or certain showing certain skin is automatically going to cause lust. In fact, there is no, there is no skin that does that. If you look around the world, there are some cultures where women show their breasts and it's not a big deal, (laughs) right? Um, It's not sexualized. And so it's not like if a woman shows her breasts, it is automatically sexual. It's cultural. Okay. So everything is cultural. Now it's really important that we are appropriate for our culture. I think that's really what first Timothy two was also about is that people feel comfortable and people are going to feel comfortable when people look normal. If you are dressed in a long denim skirt and an oversized t-shirt and a bun, because no one's allowed to cut their hair. And that's what your whole church looks like. Your average woman is going to feel very uncomfortable in that church. Even if she is dressed relatively modestly, she's going to feel judged. (laughs) So you can actually violate first Timothy two, eight to 10 by being too modest. Like what we want to do is we just want to look culturally appropriate. Now here's the issue though. What is culturally appropriate differs by generation. So Gen X and boomers get really upset about yoga pants. Like male Gen X and boomers are just on a real soapbox about yoga pants. You know who doesn't care about yoga pants? 
is Gen Z. Sorry, I'm Canadian. Gen Z. Gen Z. Do not care about yoga pants. Like it doesn't even register to most Gen Z guys. All right. Um, but Gen X and boomers, it's like just the, the worst thing in the world to wear. And when we're trying to figure out what our daughters can wear, it's I, a good rule of thumb is to think if my daughter were in a group of 20 girls at the mall wearing what she is wearing right now, would she look normal? Because if she would look normal, it means that she's not shocking. There is nothing there that is actually like immodest or calling attention to her in a sexual way. Because the way that we call attention to ourselves in a sexual way is by dressing on the extreme. So even this idea, she's dressed like a hooker. You hear that older people say that a lot about teenagers. She's just dressed like a hooker. What they mean is she's dressed the way a hooker dressed when I was young. But she's not dressed the way a hooker dresses today. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it may have been the case that that is what a hooker looked like in 1960. And I'm sorry, I don't even like the term hooker, but you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Um, but, but that isn't what someone who is, who has been forced or pressured into sex work dresses like today. Um, if someone is wearing what is considered normal for their culture, then they're not showing too much skin, even if you think they're showing too much skin, because it's lost its shock value. When everyone, everybody wore cropped, crop tops in the 80s, and no one talked about belly buttons then. Okay, it was just a normal thing. Then all of a sudden, they stopped wearing crop tops, and they started wearing low rise jeans with like the long, you know, things. And now, like, like, your butt became okay. But your stomach wasn't. Whereas like when I was a teenager, you would never wear form-fitting stuff on your butt, right? Like it was just all different. And sometimes we look at teenagers with our own cultural reference and our own generational reference, and we really judge them. And so we assume that our daughters are trying to be sexual when they're not. They're just dressing what normal girls wear and they're just trying to be pretty. And when you say to your daughter, you know, you look like a, like a prostitute or like you look like you're trying to get everyone to look at your butt, you're ascribing sexual motives to her that she probably didn't have. And that's really shaming. Like that's a really shaming message because most girls are just trying to be pretty and they're just trying to fit in. Um, and so I think moms or other people who have close contact with teens need to take a big step back and say, is she actually dressing in a way that that is odd? Because my theory is, you know what, as long as you're in the middle you know, or not too far from, from the middle. I don't care what you wear because it's lost its shock value. This isn't sexual, no matter what you're wearing, if it's in the middle, if, if like 80% of teenagers are wearing this, then it's lost its shock value. Now it might have its shock value to boomers, but boomers need to take a seat. And so did you, cause you shouldn't be looking at teenagers anyway. And so does Gen X. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's really important to realize. Um, and then, you know what, if your kid, if you still have a big issue with what your kid wears, if you're still like, uh, I know that's fashionable. I know everyone's wearing that. I'm just having a big problem with it. Then just tell your daughter that just say, this is a me problem. It isn't a you problem. This is a me problem. And I'm sorry. I wish I weren't like this, but I'm just having high blood pressure. So could we go to the store and I'll buy you something totally fashionable that doesn't get my blood pressure up? Could we do that? And most girls will understand that. <laughs> I think that's so helpful. Um, cause I just think you're right that we often are looking at people through our own personal lens and, and often again, ascribing this, um, sexual motive that is not helpful. And so to just say, you know, like 
is that a good choice maybe like that might be Mm -hmm. a helpful question sometimes but to not overly ascribe the sexuality to it I think is Mm -hmm. a really good point Mm -hmm. and honestly if a girl really is trying to dress to attract someone's attention she doesn't need a modesty talk what she needs is for someone to come alongside her and figure out what's really going on (laughs) yes yeah so true and especially there needs to be so much more grace for teenage girls like when they're developing their bodies are often changing significantly in a short amount of time and Mm -hmm. that's overwhelming and like maybe they're not even aware of how different their body looks three months like Mm -hmm. how than how it did three months ago and so they're just wearing a t-shirt that they bought three months ago that they're not thinking twice about because when they tried it on at the time it fit a certain way and maybe now it fits differently and they're not like they're not <laughs> understanding that. And so just to keep drawing attention to how their body looks, that's really overwhelming. And yeah, as you were saying, does just create shame and ascribing weird motivations that they may not have at all. And you're already so hyper self-aware and self-conscious. And again, kind of looking at everyone mm-hmm. else and am I fitting in? Am I doing it right? Essentially. And for us to then just create another level of scrutiny and another level of judgment is just so unhelpful and uncharitable for young girls. I had a woman uh, send me a story last week about a Christian school that she went to as a teen and they would have an assembly every morning where they would do chapel and then the boys would file out one door and the girls would file out the other door before they went to class. And the boy, I forget what the boys were, I guess the, the male teachers would look to see if the boys were dressed sloppily or whatever. And the female teachers would look to see if the girls were dressed modestly. And the girls who always got called out, um, this woman said were girls who tended to have larger busts or just were curvier. And so if you were a stick, you never got called out no matter what you were wearing. But if you had a larger bust, you were always called out. And so it was very shaming about something that girls could do nothing about. And she said eating disorders in her school were sky high because all the girls who were curvy were trying desperately not to be. That's so sad. And I also think like the the goodness and joy of fashion is self-expression is helping Mm -hmm. young people determine what's my style? What am I interested in? How do I want to express myself both just for myself and for the world? I think that's a much better thing to help young Mm -hmm. people think about is how does this help you understand who you are as a person and how you're growing and the interests that you have and the way that you, like even the places that you like to shop are things that communicate about who you are. That's a really fun, actually, exploration to go on with them. And can be something that's really joyful rather than just how are you presenting yourself for other people, but more like, what do you want to communicate about who you are? And let's make that actually more of a fun process than just worrying about what everyone else is thinking. Yeah, because when you worry, what you're essentially saying is your body exists as a threat to the boys around you. So you are a threat as opposed to you are beautifully and wonderfully made and there's nothing wrong with you. I think part of what's so important about us as older women really untangling ourselves from some of this is that a lot of us have internalized a lot of shame around our bodies. And without actually dealing with that, we're now perpetuating that in the next generation by commenting on a young woman's body and doing it in a way that is 
perpetuating diet culture and all the things that we grew up with that are just really toxic. And so we have to do a good work to seek healing and wholeness to continue to um, not live in shame and be able to celebrate our bodies as women. Um, And I think that's an important work for women to do as we are speaking into the lives of younger women. Yeah. I know that the other thing that I often get from women is I agree with everything you're saying, but I just, I don't want my daughter to be the victim of, you know, guys making comments about her or being rude to her in public, et cetera, et cetera. And I I get that, you know, because they're saying, I agree with what you're saying, but the world's not a safe place. And absolutely. However, (laughs) studies have repeatedly shown that what you wear is not at fault for when a girl is assaulted. Her demeanor is actually way more um, related to whether she's a victim or not. Like guys tend to look for people who look shy and scared. Like you could be dressed in fishnet stockings and stiletto heels, but if you have a don't mess with me attitude, you know, and you're staring people down while on your cell phone, you don't tend to be targeted right now. I'm Again, I'm not saying that people should wear whatever they want. Like, I'm not saying that, but it's just that a girl who is dressed super modestly, but who looks really scared um, is more likely to be a target. And so the more we can teach our kids confidence the better. And that's really the thing. Now, if you are super shy and you are assaulted, it is not your fault. It is still not, it is never your fault. The reason you were assaulted was due to one person's choice and one person's choice alone. And that is the person who chose to assault you. But this idea that we can make sure that our girls wear something so that they won't be assaulted is simply untrue. It is very untrue. Um, now, will they get cat called? Like, will, maybe, but you know what? Girls get catcalled when they're wearing, they're wearing other things too. It's often a show of power or guys trying to brag to other guys. And it's not dependent on what you wear. Will guys stare at her more? Perhaps. But often that's when she's not noticing it. And does that really matter? Like, I, I just think we need to back the truck up and just say, what exactly is it that we're scared of our daughter's experiencing? And then how can we help her navigate those experiences rather than trying to be reactive? So teacher, if someone is being really creepy with you, like trying to start up a conversation on a bus or at a donut shop, you can get up and, and leave. You don't need to owe them an explanation. You can just stand up and, and leave. You can go sit by the bus driver. You can say really loudly, why are you talking to me? <laughs> and get other people to look and be on your side. Or, you know, say really loudly, I am feeling really uncomfortable right now. I would like you to leave. Um, and, you know, and say that loudly so other people notice what's happening. Like we can train our daughters with this sort of thing rather than trying to make them dress so that it's less likely to happen. Cause that, that doesn't work anyway. So good. Well, before we close, are there any other key markers or aspects of what it looks like to kind of flip that message and move it into empowering young girls that you want to leave us with? Um, when we were trying to decide on a title for the book, we went back and forth for like two months. I don't even remember the ones we were fighting for now, but um, there's, there's three authors on She Deserves Better. Uh, and, and we just didn't like anything the publisher came up with and they didn't like anything that, that we came up with until finally they suggested She Deserves Better. 
And we were like, yeah, okay, I guess that'll work. And I just find myself saying that now over and over again. It's just, we deserve better than this. We deserve better. And what I want people to know is that religiosity and church attendance and knowing Jesus is a very protective thing. Okay. Like it leads to better marriages, long-term better self-esteem going to church on the whole has been shown to be really good. But as soon as we raise our girls to believe these toxic teachings, all of the benefits of church attendance disappear. And she would have actually been better off not going to church than going to a church, which taught her all this stuff. At least if you measure in terms of marital and sexual satisfaction later, self-esteem, chance of marrying an abuser. We deserve better than that. They have taken our safe space. We deserve to be able to rest in Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Women and girls deserve rest. We deserve a safe place in Jesus. And that means that we deserve churches that don't teach this toxic stuff. And so I just want to tell women listening that those churches exist. We know they do because church as a whole is positive. And so you don't need to support a system which is hurting your daughters and is hurting you. We can demand better because we deserve better. That's so well said. Thank you, Sheila. That's so wonderful. Yeah. And I, I hope our listeners are hearing your heart that Jamie and I share as well is the reason that we want to talk about these things and dismantle some of the toxicity is because what was purportedly intended to prevent stumbling has become a stumbling block in that it has weakened people's faith. It has actually alienated a lot of, of women and men as well from, from the church and from our risen Lord who really does love us and care for us and invite us into a life of connection and flourishing. That is such a beautiful invitation. And we have placed so many rules and expectations on it that are not scriptural, that are not biblical, that have actually led people away from the faith. And so I'm just so thankful for your work that I think the heart of what you're trying to do is to actually bring people back and maybe reconnect people to the heart of a God who does love us and invite us into a community of belonging and a community of love and flourishing. So that's what we hope um, y'all are hearing in this conversation. We really encourage you to continue to seek out Sheila's work. We will, of course, link her podcast in the show notes. You can pre-order her book, uh, She Deserves Better, that is releasing on April 18th. That's coming up very soon, which is very exciting. So we will list all of her information. You can follow her on Twitter and on Instagram as well. So check our show notes for how to get more connected with her. We are so thankful that y'all have chosen to dig in with us today. Please do connect with us on Instagram and Facebook as well. You can have, you can follow the podcast and we have merchandise that we would love for you to check out. So thanks for uncovering your place in God's story with us. <laughs>